Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. A lot of smiley faces out there today. So, we took a couple of week detour from our Matthew study before I left. But this week we're back on track. We're going to begin with lesson 59. We're in Matthew chapter 21. And in this chapter, Yeshua is heading into the final week of his life on earth. And he's told his disciples that he's going to suffer and die, even that they are going up to Jerusalem now for that very reason, that he's going to suffer and die. He's going to make his entry into Jerusalem on the 10th of the month of Nisan, on the first day of the week. And we can piece this together from details we get about his entry. He'll be greeted as he enters into Jerusalem with great celebration. The people will say, Hosanna to the son of David, declaring him, in essence, to be king. And if we look at Passover, we find that the lambs were to be selected also on the 10th of the Hebrew month of Nisan. And so they proclaim Yeshua to be the son of David. On the same day, they select the Pesach lambs. And so he's beginning the fulfillment of being the Lamb of God. He also comes into Jerusalem as prophesied by Zechariah and by Daniel. Zechariah told us that the king would come lowly riding on a donkey. And Daniel told us that it would be in the month of Nisan in this very year that it's happening. And this wasn't lost on Yeshua. He purposefully is fulfilling this prophecy. He's orchestrating this. He knows he's fulfilling this prophecy of Zechariah and of Daniel. So let's read beginning with verse 1 of chapter 21. And it says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, On the Mount of Olives, Yeshua sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And so he's fulfilling this prophecy purposefully. But we can also see by the fact that he knows of a donkey in a village that they haven't even reached yet. And he tells us that this was foreordained and purposed to happen on that day more than by just Yeshua alone. And notice what else it says. He tells the disciples, if anyone says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs them. He's riding into Jerusalem in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah, and he makes no bones about it. He tells them, the Lord needs the colt, referring to himself. On the last week of Yeshua's life, he ascends into Jerusalem by the way of the road from Jericho, coming up the east side of the Mount of Olives, staying at Bethany. He's passing through Bethpage, and he instructs his disciples to fetch a donkey. And it goes on to say, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Yeshua instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Yeshua sat on them. So just as Yeshua is orchestrating this so everyone will know that this is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah and of Daniel, so too Matthew tells us that he just flat out tells us that this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. To be sure, 
that we would understand. And make no mistake, the fact is not lost on a single soul that day. They all knew that this was the prophecy of Zechariah. They were expecting a king to come. They were expecting Messiah to come. And here he comes, riding on the colt of a donkey. And the response of the people was that same that they would give a victorious king who was coming into the city. Listen to what it says in verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I said they gave him the welcome of a king. And not just a king, but a victorious king. It says they laid their cloaks and branches on the path. This was the custom for kings and victors. We can see, in, if we read in 1 Maccabee, it was the custom for victors coming into the city. Chapter 13 and verse 51 says, And entered in, into it the three and twentieth day of the second month in the hundred seventy and first year with thanksgiving and with branches of palm trees, and with harps and cymbals, with vials, with hymns and songs, because there was destroyed a great enemy out of Israel. And so this is how they welcomed the victors into the city. Risto Santale in his book, Messiah in the Old Testament, tells us that this, was, this gathering of people and singing psalms was also done in the acclamation of the king as he entered into Jerusalem. And you can find examples of that in the life of David and other places in history. But there's one major difference. The king or royalty or the victor never stooped to riding on the colt of a donkey. I want you to note that the acclamation here is taken from Psalm 118. They acclaim him king and they're also quoting this psalm. And it says in verse 25 of that psalm, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us and with bows in hand join the festival procession up to the horns of the altar. I want you to also note that this is a psalm of ascent and that, this, that the psalms of ascent were the psalms that were sung by the Levitical choir on Passover as the people slaughtered their lambs. And I want you to put that on a back burner for a little bit later. But verse 12 says, When Yeshua entered Jerusalem, the whole city was astir and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered. This is Yeshua, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And so those on the road call him the son of David and welcome him as they would a conquering king. And then when he arrives in the city, the city of course is all astir because of the adoration of the people on his arrival. And the people in the city call Yeshua the prophet. And Luke adds something that Matthew doesn't. And I want to read, they call him a prophet. And he immediately responds in the book of Luke with a prophecy. And it was in response to some Pharisees questioning him. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 19, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Yeshua, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And so while everyone is aware of the significance of Yeshua's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, not everyone sees eye to eye on Yeshua's kingship. Not everyone sees this as fulfilling that prophecy in Zechariah, but they see it as a stunt. They've seen messiahs before, and it's always ended badly. Roman suppression and oppression in response. The point being, even after Yeshua has done all that he has done, they reject him as king and messiah, the leaders. Listen to what it says as we read on in Luke. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they will dash you to the ground and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Yeshua laments and he weeps over the city because its leaders did not recognize the time of their visitation. They didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize the hour of their visitation. They should have known Daniel prophesied that Messiah would come on this very day. Zechariah told him that, the, told him that the, he would come riding lowly on a donkey. But they did not heed the words of Zechariah or Daniel. The teachers of Israel had also missed prophecies of Malachi, which said that the Messiah would rise with healing in the corners of his garments. And they missed it, even though everywhere Yeshua went, people touched the corner of his garment and were healed. They missed his miraculous feeding of thousands of people. They dismissed his driving out of demons. And they also dismissed his entry as Zechariah prophesied. Not only that, but in just a few days, the prophecy of Isaiah 53 and of David in Psalm 22 will also fall on deaf ears. They missed the hour of their visitation of the king of Israel. They missed it because he came, like Zechariah said, lowly, riding on a donkey. Lowly, not on a horse or in a chariot as a conquering king would come, but he comes to them lowly. He'll come back as a king, but not for 2,000 more years. In light of this rejection, as I was reading this, I found it amazing that the cult that Yeshua rides comes from Beth Page. And if you look at the meaning of the word which I put up here, I want you to know that it means house of the unripe figs. The fig tree refers to Israel in Scripture. And so the colt is taken from the house of the unripe fig. And like the fig tree with unripe figs, Israel is not ready for the harvest and for the Messiah. And what makes this really amazing is a passage from Sanhedrin 98a of the Talmud. It says this, 
Our Joshua opposed two verses. It is written, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, whilst elsewhere it is written, Behold, thy king cometh lowly, riding upon an ass. If they are meritous, he will come with the clouds of heaven. If not, lowly, riding upon an ass. And so Messiah comes to Jerusalem on a colt which Mark and Luke add has never been ridden. And it was taken from the house of the unripe fig. And he comes to a people who are not ready for the harvest and are not worthy of his coming, just as the rabbi said. And so we have Yeshua coming into Jerusalem and the people of Israel who are on the road that day for the festivities of Passover week, they see him as the son of David riding lowly on a donkey, the king coming to them. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai. They say the very words that Yeshua tells us that we focused on before I left, that Yeshua tells us that the Jewish people must say before he returns. Remember, let's read it again. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So you have to ask yourself, why when days earlier as he's entering into Israel, Am Israel, the people of Israel, lined the road and said, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai. Why would Yeshua say, you'll not see me again until you say, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai. The king comes to them, they greet him as such with those very words. And then he says, how I've longed to gather you. Well, the king does come to them. And it's true, he's been king since the very beginning of the age. And it's true that by and through this king, all things were created. But it's also true that unless the next few days transpire, the kingdom of the king will be rather small in terms of inhabitants. They see their king. They see the king but they do not understand the price that the king is going to have to pay to be their king. Not because he couldn't come into Jerusalem as they expected and defeat those who were about to take his life. He certainly could have done that. But as great a king as he is, this king is also a true shepherd and he's more concerned for his people and his subjects than he is for himself. And so here comes the king lowering himself, humbling himself, riding on a colt of a donkey, prepared to pay the ultimate price, the ultimate humiliation to redeem those who are lost. Yes, he is and always will be king, but to be their king, a terrible price must be paid. And we'll never be able to understand, nor will they understand the price he's going to have to pay. As the song we sometimes sing goes, we'll never know the cost to see our sin upon that stake. That stake 
that was erected for the king of creation so that he might redeem those he created. In just a few days, we're going to be remembering in our Seder, Seder, as best we can, the terrible price that he paid. And I say as best we can because just as surely as we can never fully comprehend who he is, we're never going to be able to really comprehend the price he had to pay. The king, the creator of the age, is about to be killed and humiliated by those he came to save, by those who he helped form from the dust of the earth. And now, so that they won't return to dust, but that he might breathe life into them again, and they may live a life that is life with him, he gives his life for those he loves. And if you can wrap your mind around that, you can begin to understand how much he loves you and how much he loves all of his people Israel. And I can tell you that you need to try to fathom this mystery because it will set you free from self-doubt. It will free you to be all that you can be in the kingdom of heaven. It will set you free to love one another. You'll begin to realize how much he loves you and more importantly, how much he loves your neighbor. How much he loves his people, Israel. You see, it'll give you a new compassion when your brother falls or sins against you because you'll realize how much he loves you and also how much he loves him. Shaul touches on it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. He says, Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Look at this. The one who was with God at creation, he came and took on our sinful nature. He came here from eternity to be made in human likeness. I wish that we could grasp that. But we cannot comprehend I just came back from Israel, and Terry and I purposed ourselves. We really didn't go to where the tours goes, but we walked through the national parks. We walked through forests. We walked through the desert. We walked along the Galilee. We went to a park where they had tried to restore the land and the plants and the animals as they were in biblical times. And as I walked around Israel, I marveled at the beauty of what God had made and why he loved this land so much that he put his name on it and he called it holy. And as I walked and I looked at the beauty of the land, I also realized that even as beautiful as the land was, it was marred because it has been trampled down. It is not as God made it. Men have trampled it down. We haven't cared for it. We were supposed to be the gardeners. And it's only now starting to be restored. And so I, as I walked, I tried to imagine the beauty 
of what it will be when it's restored by God, when God restores the new heavens and the new earth. But of course, I couldn't imagine because Isaiah tells us this in 64 verse 4, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by ear, neither hath I seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that wait for him. Now think about this. If we can't even imagine the kingdom that's coming and has been prepared for us, how can we ever understand the glory and the wonder of what Messiah left to become lower than the angels, made in human likeness, to humble himself for love of you. If we read on in Philippians, it says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on an execution stake. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. Not only did he leave the wonder of what we can't even comprehend to come here, and stoop to meet us. But he humbled himself even unto death, a death on the stake at the hands of the rulers of this age, for you, for me, and for everyone who will call on his name. That's love. And for that love, God gave him a name above all names and authority above all authority, authority to pick up what the life that he lost, and not only his, but yours. And so finally, Shaul says... That the name of Yeshua, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Yeshua is Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. You see, the disciples knew that day he entered Jerusalem that he was Lord. He said to them, tell them that the Lord needs the coat. And they ran and they fetched the coat. And then after he paid the price, they went out and did his will till the day their lives were taken from them. You see, that's what you do for the Lord. That's what you do for your Lord. It's your reasonable service to your Lord. Your Lord is your master and his will trumps your will. You do his will forsaking your own will. You know, we sing another song. Come, now is the time to worship. And in essence it says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And then it says still the greatest blessing remains for those who gladly choose Yeshua now. And it's a loose quote from Isaiah. And let's read from Isaiah to get the full impact. This is what Isaiah 43 verse 23 says. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear and they will say of me in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. Shaul quotes this as well and he adds a little something to it which I'm going to read next in chapter 14 and verse 12. It says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, stop passing judgment on one another. Imagine that. Can, did, you, did you hear what I said? Each of us is going to give an account of ourselves to God. Frightening, isn't it? 
Isn't that frightening? I guess that kind of puts a crimp in the idea that Yeshua gave us grace to go on sinning, doesn't it? If we're going to all have to stand there and give an account to God. Because we're each going to have to stand before God one day and have a little chat about how we lived our lives. That is something the song really doesn't get into. It doesn't really state that. But if you really understand the word worship... From its biblical perspective, you would understand that's exactly what the song is saying in its truest sense. You see, the word, the Hebrew word we translate worship in the Bible is never applied to singing songs. The English word worship has a broader meaning than the biblical word, and it means to sing songs. And singing songs and calling it worship according to the English definition of the word is fine, that's great. Because that's what the English word means. But when reading the Bible and you come across the word worship, you have to forget the singing songs and you have to understand it in the sense that it's brought forth in the Bible. And the Hebrew word for worship is shakah. And I put it up here. Listen to what it says. Bow down, crouch, fall down flat, stoop, humbly beseech. I didn't see anything about guitar playing there. I didn't see anything about singing there, did you? It means that you prostrate yourself to God. It means to fall down and say, Lord, your will be done in my life. It means I surrender my life to you. It means I'm nothing. I'm lowly. You're above me. You are Lord, and as I lay here helpless, my life is in your hands. I want to do your will. You see, worship is exactly what the verse says. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to God. Just as the song says. The blessing, though, really does come to those who do it now. Because later, after Yeshua's foot touches down on the Mount of Olives, confessing time is over. Understand that the very first time, I want to show you the importance of this word, the very first time that this word shaka is used in scripture, it's used of Abraham. In chapter 22, verse 4 and 5, it says, On the third day Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance and said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham is going to offer his only son on the altar and he says to his servant, that he and his son are going to worship. And again, notice, he only has a knife and some wood, no piano, no guitar, no harp, no lyre. (laughs) Think about it. This is the hardest thing that Abraham ever did in his life, a request that's beyond comprehension, one of total submission to God, and he says of this offering of his only son, We're going to worship. The boy and I will worship. Isaac too, in his offering, is totally giving himself to God. And so both are worshiping God. They're laying down their wills. They're laying down all that's important to them in life. And in fact, Isaac is even laying down his life. That's worship. Now, lest you doubt that simple definition, let's look at another place where this word occurs. 
This time in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13. Now when Joshua was, Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as the commander of the Lord, army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said to him, Lord, what commandest thou thy servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy. You see, the word worship means not just to even prostrate yourself, but it means you prostrate yourself and then you say, Lord, what is it that you ask of your servant? What can I do for you? What must I do? I said, Yeshua, when... He rode into Jerusalem. He heard, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when he was crucified, probably one of the last things he heard were the temple priests singing Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Of course, on that day, it wasn't to him they were singing. And finally, because it was not to him that they sang that day, they will not see him again until they say, Baruch Hababa Shem And I can tell you that most won't do that until the king is about to return. The Jewish people are still to this day waiting for that conquering king before they say, Baruch Hababa Shem And worship him. Waiting for the king. And let me say, they don't got long to wait. Because God was showing me throughout this trip that the time of the good news and the blessing going out to the nations of the earth is over. What we call the time of the Gentiles. You see, we've rejected God. We've rejected Messiah just as surely as Israel of the first century. And more than that, we are corrupt. And God has warned us with disasters, with drought, with storms, with attack, foreign attacks on our soil. We look around us, we see the moral decay and corruption all around us, and yet we, like Israel, did not heed the warnings. And it's not just us. It's the whole of the nations of the earth lining up against Israel. You see, we've all been lulled to sleep. We're like sheeple. Only we're not following the true shepherd. Listen, folks. God's blessing and focus is moved from the nations of the earth to the people in the land of Israel. And I can tell you that about all that's left for the nations is to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's not a pretty thing. And I can tell you something else. Contrary to much of what the church teaches, when the events of Revelation begin to happen, there's not going to be any great revival among the nations, as you hear taught in the church. Because if you read the book, the book says after all the trumpet calls and after all the plagues, it says the peoples of the world still did not repent. The only people group that I see repent in the book of Revelation are the people of Israel. And perhaps... A few strangers. 
But for the most part, the whole of the rest of the people of the nations just continue to thumb their noses at God and continue Torah-breaking and continue immoral and unjust ways. And they do this because they, like first century Israel, are going to miss the hour of their visitation. But unlike Israel, there will be no remedy. When I say nations, I'm speaking much of the church as well because much of the church is winking at immorality. Winking and allowing things that are detestable to God. And everybody's going to stand and have a little chat with him on that day. Now let me tell you what else I saw as I walked through the land of Israel. I saw a country blessed by God. I saw the blessing of God on the land like I've never seen it before. They're moving toward blessing just as surely and as fast as we're moving toward destruction. Listen, friends, God is turning his attention back to Israel. The time is short. The door is closing for the rest of the peoples of the earth. And this is not time for the people of God to be using half measures. It's time for us to dedicate our lives. It's time for us to fall down on our faces and say, Lord, what must I do? And with all of this in your mind, I want you to ask yourself this morning, I want you to ask yourself this morning, are you like Israel? Think about it. Are you waiting for the ruling king to come before you begin to worship in the biblical sense? Are you waiting to truly bend your knee? Are you waiting for the king to come as king before you turn your will over to his? Because I can tell you that you'll be too late if you wait. You know, the hearts of the people of the earth are being hardened. Don't let it happen to you. Ask yourself, what about this life is so wonderful, so important that you haven't turned it over to Yeshua? As Joshua did, as Abraham did, as Isaac did. And ask yourself, is the will of Yeshua more important to you than your own will? Because if not, you're not worshiping God. And I'm not talking about singing songs when I say worship. But I'm talking about the biblical definition of the word worship. Worshiping in, in, in songs is great. But let me tell you what Yeshua thinks of worshiping in songs only. He tells, he says this in Matthew chapter 15. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Yeshua wants the worship that comes from a bent knee far more than songs. And you can't wait until he returns to say, Baruch Ababa Shem Adonai, and call him king and do his will. You are like the disciples. And you, like the disciples, have to confess today and fall on your face today and do his will today. So you need to ask yourself, what takes you out of the will 
What takes you out of Yeshua's will? Before I left, I talked about how important his people Israel are to him and his focus is turning back to the Jewish people and that the time of the Gentiles is closing. We talked about it before I left. And so we need to be sensitive to them as they come in. It's the will of Yeshua that they come to know him. And remember we talked about meat and cheese and I said, is your cheeseburger more important than that? Is your turkey a la king more important than that? If it meant the difference between a Jewish person being comfortable here, would you give up a cheeseburger? Somebody has said that that's sin, that not eating meat and cheese together would be sin. Let me tell you something. Not eating meat and cheese together is fasting something, and it's a good deed. So that that person can come in and stay here long enough to know Yeshua. You see, Yeshua could care less about your cheeseburger. He's concerned with the person that you're eating that cheeseburger in front of. Is it your will that those coming to Sar Shalom, because I know it's Yeshua's will, that those coming to Sar Shalom learn the truth of him? That they come in here and are made productive members of the community. That's his will. And if they go downstairs to the owning hall and sit at your table and all they hear is gun laws, rights in this country, who's president, what Obama did this week, and on and on, what are they going to think? You know what those things are, folks? They're distractions. They're just distractions to keep your thoughts and your minds from God and His will. Do you really think that speaking of gun laws and Obamacare is more important than witnessing Yeshua in his fullness to those who sit at your table? Do you really think? If so, then you need a few lessons on the heart of Yeshua. I can tell you that that kind of thing has driven more people away from here than any other single thing. And let me say, if you don't think that, that won't be a part of your little chat with God. When you stand before the king, you better think again. And you better start reevaluating what's important to Yeshua. Because that's going to be part of your little chat. Do you really want to stand before the judge of all the earth and explain how the argument you had in earshot with a visitor? Over Obamacare, took that person out of here, took him away from the truth and sent him back to a church or a synagogue. Do you really want to, do you really want to explain that? Is that part of what you want to confess in your little chat with God? Bring the worship team up here for a Sar Shalom has always walked in the blessing of God. Because we've always been doing his will. We've always been in his will and always doing his will. But I can tell you this day that his focus is changing. And we need to change with it. We need to move in the direction he's moving or we'll be no better than any other reform movement that's ever happened in history. We'll end up just like the other churches, dead inside arguing about this with sermons that are little more than one-sided news reports about the events in the world today. 
You see, it's all about being sensitive to others, about caring more for others, loving others the way Yeshua loved you. Listen to me today, Sar Shalom. Time is short. And the question is this Will Sar Shalom have their knee bend? Will it be bowed? Will you be found doing His will or will you be found doing your own? Will you be found with God on your lips or Obama on your lips? Will you be found professing the good news or shouting down gun laws? Will you be found doing His will or yours? Will your knee be bent or will it be straight? God is asking us all to make a huge leap today and bend our knee to Yeshua, to true worship of Yeshua. You see, this song, instead of singing, come, now is the time of worship in English, we need to sing, come, now is the time to bend your knee. Come, now is the time to give your heart. Come, now is the time to fall on your face in worship. Come, submit and serve your God. As we sing today, you need to ask him, Lord, what in my life is keeping me from truly serving you? What is it that keeps my knee unbent? What is it that keeps you from his will? What is it that keeps your life from being the true blessing you seek? Let's ask him today. Ask him for the grace to change our lives. And when it comes to the confessing, that little chat with God, I want that all of our chats will be very short. I want just a short little chat with God. And all I want all of us to hear is well done, good and faithful servant. Stand and take your place at my table. Amen?